politics and faith. The intersectionality of the two is a topic I often think about because I hate seeing religion used as a battering ram or an iron rod to oppress the rights of other citizens or to spread a xenophobic fear of the other. I also believe in the protection of religious liberties, especially for those holding minority views. So today I brought in Dr. Cedric Vine, a professor of New Testament studies, to discuss the focus of his dissertation, which is how the Gospel of Matthew views the intersectionality of faith and politics. So let's begin. Before we get into this, um, just kind of like a precursor, and the precursor is uh, I have a very troubled past (laughs) with trying to understand how our faith should work in conjunction with politics. And I think my generation is very much kind of similar in that way. Like we're very wary of taking away civil liberties um, for the sake of a religious ideology. But in Matthew, you see that there is a a proper kind of um, coordination and, and working together between faith and government. And so, especially now, the times are very uh, hot topic, and I think people tend to make the assumption that if you want faith in politics and you want a Trump government, or you are bipartisan. And so I think it's important, even as Christians, to not be partisan um, in in how we interact with government. And I think you're going to shed some light on that today. So thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So what I want to ask you is, You know, Christianity has had a really bad history, right? We've had a bad history of kind of um, when we're in power and we're allowing kind of what we feel the interpretation of the Bible should be and enforcing that through law, we end up being a persecuting power and we persecute a lot of innocent people in the process. And so how do we not, um, and and I think we're going to get into this in this next segment, but how do we not become a micromanaging religion where those who are in the dominant consensus of how they read scripture begin to um, persecute others who read it differently. So that we're not in this place of using civil authority to enforce kind of religious um, ideology and interpretation of the text. So, Okay, so how do you avoid becoming a persecuting power yourself? Yes. Um, and this is this is actually going slightly away from we can go back to Daniel, the book of Daniel, and there you've got um, um, you've got Daniel seven. You've got these beasts uh, who persecute God's people, mm. and God's people look for this liberator, the Son of Man, who will come and liberate them. Uh, and what's unstated is what will happen if God's people themselves actually become a beast. Mm. And this is what's happened in Matthew. Hmm. So in the Gospel of Matthew, the Son of Man, who should come to liberate his people, he should come and they should be, oh, here is the Son of Man, he's come. Instead, what happens is, is that God's people, through their leaders and through the crowds, but to a lesser extent, they actually take out their liberator. Hmm. They collude with the, the Gentiles, with the Roman authorities, and they take Jesus out. So it warns you, we've got this warning in the gospel that God's people, Israel, have this, um, have as much a capacity as any other people to turn into a beast and to turn into a persecuting monster. Mm. How you counteract that in the gospel is through the teachings of the three weightier matters of the law. Mm. Um, 
And uh, if it's a danger that Israel could do it, it's also a danger that the followers of Jesus could also turn into a beast. Mm. And the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23, verse 23, it's really easy to remember that verse, <laughs> Matthew 23, verse 23, uh, are justice or judgment, mm. yeah, crisis is the Greek word, and it, and it can be both those, justice and judgment. Um, why they're really two sides of the same coin is that in order to have justice, sometimes you need to have judgment. Mm. And in order to judge properly, you need justice. So mm. really they're the same thing. And uh, uh, you have judgment, and then you have mercy, mm. um, and then you have faith. Mm. Faith not just in anything, but in the sovereign rule of Jesus. And the, the assumption is, is that um, if you keep those weightier matters of the law, guiding your words and your deeds and your thoughts, so what you do externally, but also what you think um, behind your sunglasses, mm. yeah, then you know that in terms of justice, you will be held accountable and you will be treated as you treat others. Mm. Uh, in terms of mercy, you'll only get as much mercy as you extend to others. Mm. Yeah? So what's missing from Matthew is grace. Mm. You know, grace is that, hey, I get treated in a way which I really don't deserve. Mm. Uh, now, we get mercy in Matthew in that, for example, Jesus tells the parable of a, a servant who owes a huge amount to his king. He is forgiven that amount in Matthew 18. But then when he won't extend the same mercy to his fellow servant, he gets um, that uh, debt reimposed. Mm. and he gets punished. So mercy is, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. It's conditional. Mm. Uh, it's always got a string attached that it's, it's based on how we, teach, uh, how we treat others. And then faith is um, uh, really a guard against idolatry. Everybody worships something. Uh, we, we, we are great at idolatry, <laughs> most of all serving ourselves and worshipping ourselves. And uh, at the moment, uh, as I read Western culture, um, we are absolutely focused on the self and self-achievement, self-pleasure. Uh, essentially, we are worshipping ourselves mm. and have placed ourselves at the centre of the universe, yeah. which was something which even Galileo couldn't do. Yeah, um, th This is something which I've also noticed in Matthew. You know, I, I grew up in the Adventist church when we long for the second coming. Mm. Yeah, the second coming is coming along and that's when we get our rosette and our badge and our, our bag of sweets from the Lord and our well done and our, our uh, <coughs> you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Mm. Uh, but actually in Matthew, 95% of the time, there are a few references which talk about it as being a time of reward. Mm. But most of the time, it's talked about um, as very, very negative. It's mm. a time when there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, mm. casting out into outer darkness, running to the hills, um, calling for the stones to fall upon you. It's the time when um, the Lord treats the nations in the same way that they have treated his people. And so we we are going to the nations and we're telling them judgment is coming, you're going to be held to account and we ourselves also need to live in the shadow of judgment, mm. aware of that. And so we need to think, is to think of the second coming 
not just as a day of reward, but also a day of accountability. Yeah. And by and large, we've lost that. Mm. You know, we've lost that sense of the fearful nature of the second coming. And this is where I found that in the gospel, it's got a theology to slow down judgment. Mm. I mean, why would you pray for the second coming if you know it's the destruction of the vast majority of the nations? Hmm. Yeah. It was very strange. I mean, why would yeah. you? <laughs> uh, I mean, what, right. what's, what's the mindset yeah. which says, Lord, I think it's time for another Holocaust. Right. Okay. Now, the only ones who are really have the right to do that say, Lord, speed up your second coming, yeah, are those who themselves have paid the ultimate sacrifice. It's the martyrs who cry out. Mm. And this is where in the Gospel of Matthew, we've got this, this theology of the blood of the righteous, those who've been slain, cries out for justice, starting mm. with Abel through to Zechariah, son of Berechiah in Matthew 23. And they're crying for justice. Justice, when will it occur? Mm. And it's those who've earned the right by themselves giving everything who have the right to say, now, Lord, speed up judgment. Now, right. Otherwise, our prayer should be, Lord, don't judge them yet. Don't come yet. Because, you know, we have a modicum of love for the nations ourselves. Mm. They're our community. We come from these communities. Mm. Um, slow it down so that we can, we can change them so that they turn back to you. And that's really what Jesus was doing when he went to Galilee. He was mm. appealing to them. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I, I guess this next question will probably lead us into the, the different categories of being a disciple, but it's like, how do you be that and not become, you know, the crazy guy on the sidewalk with the, with, the sign that says turn or burn, you know, like how do we witness to others where, you know, yes, the second coming is a fearful thing, but that we're not prematurely pronouncing judgment and repulsing those whom we are supposed to win through love. So, so what you do, <laughs> you use the carrot and the stick. Hmm. So this is where when you read Matthew, it starts off very positively. It starts off with deeds of power. Chapters 8 and 9 are just packed with uh, approximately nine miracles mm. where Jesus is healing the blind, um, uh, the lepers, uh, all these. And this, this is not just free health care, mm. yeah, um, <clears throat> which uh, I have to confess uh, <laughs> in, in England we have, um, we don't pay for it apart from through our taxes. Oh, man. So, so this wouldn't have, um, people, people wouldn't have been as struck so much in, uh, in England uh, as they would in the US yes. where we can't <laughs> afford the, the, the hospitals. And so what, what the gospel does, it, it offers at the beginning of the gospel sort of a carrot. This is what will happen if you change for the positive. Uh, and then at the end, it tells you this is what will happen if you reject this. Mm. And it will really only happen soon if you respond with such hostility that you kill my disciples. But if you just respond with hostility, it'll be worse for you on judgment day. Mm. Um, so mm. it, it's giving us this, it's like the prophets in the Old Testament. They always had to offer hope as well as warning. Mm. They were holding those two things in tension. Uh, as I was researching for, for this book, I came across um, uh, a couple of authors outside of New Testament, um, uh, field of New Testament, who made the point that uh, Western Christians tend to be economically fairly well off. 
And so Western Christians have lost the art of lament. They don't want to change the system. Why? Because they benefit from the system. They don't want to upset the apple cart uh, because the apple cart is actually a very nice place to feed at. Mm. Yeah, so Christians uh, in the West, when they come to church, they're praying for stability, for peace. They're praying, f- uh, they, they, they're full of worship for the God who gives all these blessings. Let's count our blessings. That's a Western thing to do. Mm. When you're living in a place where you are persecuted and a minority, yeah, instead you have, uh, your worship is the worship of lament. It's the worship of, of critique. Uh, of the wider system. Mm. And uh, uh, we've sort of um, maybe become a little too close to the system to recognize that the system now is in a state of idolatry. Mm. It's moved away from the Lord and it will experience the judgments just as Israel did. And either we care about our society and we need to warn them what's going on, or we just back away and say, well, there's enough uh, that still... there's enough in it for us still to be personally blessed where we don't feel uh, the need to to care about what's going on Mm. elsewhere in our cities. Mm. But the difficulty we have in the gospel is that judgment occurs at two levels, at the individual level and at the national level. Mm. And the two are closely linked. So Capernaum, it will be worse for you on judgment day. Chorazin, Bethsaida, it will be worse for you than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. So you as an individual, you are experienced, uh, you experience judgment individually, but it's always within the context of your city, of what your city has done. And we have a responsibility for our cities, our nations, because judgment happens at that level. It's a collective uh, uh, venture, which by and large, we've sort of lost that emphasis in the West mm. where we've privatized religion mm. and we've forgotten the fact that God uh, also views people as being part of collectives. I think it, I think you're making a really good point. And I think it's also important to distinguish between, you know, what is his disciple? Is his disciple a Republican, you know, like, or, or a Democrat? Like, do they fall into partisan lines or what does it mean to, to help the nation in that way? Okay, so (laughs) let me outline, Uh, I've, uh, in what I've written, I've identified five different discipleship roles. Mm. So just to recap, chapter 10 and chapter 23 give us uh, five roles, prophets, righteous persons, disciples, wise men, and scribes. Mm. What isn't on the table, which you find in Luke, but not in Matthew, in Luke, Jesus says, I confer upon you a kingdom Hmm. uh, in the upper room. He says, disciples, you've got a kingdom. Now, if I've got a kingdom, that makes me into a king. Hmm. Doesn't make me top king because Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But in Matthew, he doesn't say that. In Matthew, the only king in town is King Jesus. Hmm. But, and the fact that he doesn't tell the disciples to become kings means that he allows for earthly kings to still sit on their thrones. So what we've essentially got, we've got these five roles, prophets, righteous persons, disciples, wise men, and scribes, who are to go into the nations and they are to try and turn the nations around in various ways because each of these roles has a different function. 
Mm. It has a different theology. Uh, but uh, as I've gone through this, I found that Matthew, um, he mixes these five roles all the way through his gospel. Uh, and you may identify with one particular one, or you may identify with two or a mixture. Um, I mean, you just think of the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about righteous persons. Blessed are the righteous. It talks about prophets. You will be persecuted as the prophets. It talks about false prophets, how you are to tell them. Uh, it talks about discipleship. Discipleship is education. Um, so it talks about... Um, um, those who not only hear my words but act upon them. That's a good student. It's educational mm. language in the ancient world. Mm. It talks about wise men. The foolish man built his house upon the rock. Sorry, <laughs> on the sand. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go back and read the text again. And then the wise man built his house upon the rock. Mm. It's typical Old Testament, um, uh, sapiential, we call it, um, wisdom uh, motifs. And then We've got um, uh, le uh, scribal, legal uh, imagery. Uh, do not say that I've come to uh, overturn the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. You've heard it say, thou shalt not murder, mm. which is from the Ten Commandments. He's, he's interacting with the law and giving his own judgments and reading. So you, you look at chapters, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to, to 7, and they are infused with motifs which relate to these five discipleship roles. Mm. Prophet, righteous person, um, disciple, wise man, and scribe. That's just the Sermon on the Mount. I can take you to almost any other chapter and mm -hmm. find that you get this infusion of roles all the way through mm. uh, the, the gospel. And so he's very clearly, he's saying, to, oh, to change the nations around, we need all these roles. Mm. Uh, now, I can go and give you a, a, a pricey of what each of these roles um, would entail. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, yeah. So what would a prophet and a disciple, a righteous man, what would their, their roles be? What they do. Yeah. So a prophet does this. Uh, <clears throat> a prophet uh, is only necessary when a, st a nation has stepped back from God. So um, what I, I, the um, analogy I've used is that of two dance partners. Mm. Uh, you've got two dance partners. Now, you imagine they're doing a foxtrot or a waltz together. They're close together. They're embraced. Mm. This is the ideal relationship between God and his people. When one partner steps back, Generally, if the nation steps back from God, generally we think that God is like sort of, um, I don't know, a puppy, uh, you know, a dog on heat. He sort of runs after, but he doesn't. Mm. What he does, he steps back as well. That's mm. very clear in the Old Testament. When the people step back from God, he steps back. He honors them. He says, mm. your relationship to me is how I will relate to you. Mm. And so what you end up with, you end up with a city in which God is absent. Mm. Okay. Now, this has huge explanatory significance for how we understand our experience as Christians within a secular world. Mm. Because in the secular world, the nation, the, at an official level, has stepped back from God. Mm. And God steps back from the world. You know, I, I've traveled a lot in the world. And you go to some countries and... People talk about God, he's there. You know it. You then come home and you think, where is he? Mm. 
Yeah, and I, this model just helps me understand right. that God actually sometimes withdraws His presence. Mm. So when your your, athe- uh, your your atheist apologists argue, where is the evidence for God's presence? I can actually say, well, it's not there at the moment. Why? Because you step back from Him, and He's withdrawn from you. He's left you His fingerprints in nature and in history mm. and uh, His deeds that He's done in the past. But if you've rejected that, if he came close to you now, you'd still reject him. Mm. So when these two dance partners move apart, the prophet comes in and is a mediator in that process Mm. between those two dance partners. And he becomes a voice in a way for both partners. So he becomes a voice for God and he shows them uh, Jesus as prophet does deeds of power. He says, if you come back, these are the great things that can happen. Uh, but if you don't, then this is what will happen. So it's laying out in black and white the consequences of the current spiritual situation. Mm. Then you've got the righteous person. Uh, <clears throat> this was sort of a new discovery for me as I, I researched this. The righteous person theology in the gospel is based on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom. And Abraham says, you can't do that, Lord. You're a just God, and a just God can't wipe out the righteous with the righteous. You just can't do it. It's like Mm. carpet bombing a whole city in order to get one or two muggers. You just can't do it, Lord. Mm. So what what Abraham says, well, okay, if there's 50 righteous persons, will you still destroy Sodom? No. And then he bargains him down, 40, 30, 20, 10. If there's 10 righteous persons, will you still destroy Sodom? No, I won't. Mm. Okay. Problem is they can't even find 10. And those who are left are actually ambiguous as to whether they're righteous. Lot, he's an ambiguous character, but he flees. The righteous flee. And so what you find is uh, that you've got a theology based on that story, which resonates through many Jewish traditions right up to the time of Jesus, where they talk about righteous persons. And the righteous person is like the salt of the earth. It preserves it. Mm. God doesn't judge a city if there are righteous persons in the city. Um, Jesus tells his followers, when you see these signs, the abomination of desolation, flee from Jerusalem. Don't even defend your city, your Mm -hmm. own mother town. Flee from your city uh, to the mountains. And this is an allusion to the Lot story who fled from Sodom to the mountains. Mm. So we've got this theology of the righteous persons. And in some Jewish traditions, they even believed that... um, uh, one righteous person in the world was enough to defer judgment. Mm. Uh, there's a, a large body of um, tradition which talks about this, and Jesus seems to be tapping into that. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I have a, a quick question. Going back a little bit to the prophet, um, like in our own heritage of uh, you know of, of prophecy, we don't see this prophet acting in the capacity of, of speaking to kings. I mean, it's more of a a, a reproof to the church and its order and its government. So, uh, yeah, uh, how, what, do, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, you are right on that. And there are prophets which are internal and prophets which are external and those who mm. dabble in both. Mm. Uh, I mean, Jonah was the one who went to the foreigners, to Nineveh, and then you had those who went to uh, Judah or to Israel. Um, and in the New Testament, by and large, most prophecy is internal. 
Mm. But you've also got prophets who go to, um, to, to others. Uh, I've just been writing a piece on um, uh, non-combatancy mm. and the military. I've been asked to write this right. uh, and the New Testament. And when you look at the Adventist uh, position during the American uh, Second Civil War, mm. uh, <clears throat> the first being what they call the American War of Independence. But um, in the American Civil War uh, of 1863, um, the, the church had to take a position. Mm. And what surprised me is Ellen White takes a very political position. Mm. Uh, and she's not, you know, she, she condemns the South, but she also condemns the North uh, very, very strongly, those who are um, um, leading the war effort for doing it for selfish reasons. Mm. I was really surprised. And not moving I, quick enough. And not me- moving yeah. quick enough and yeah. delaying in order to enhance their own glory. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, she, I think she talked on things yeah. which... She talked politically. She talked politically as yeah. well. Um, so... Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's just kind of a, a question. I know that we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I want you to get to the last couple... Of roles. Yeah, last couple of roles. Okay, so the next one is disciples. Mm-hmm. And why you need disciples is this, is that if the prophet is the call, come back to me, mm-hmm. and then the righteous person is uh, a salt which preserves the community and, uh, and just defers divine judgment. The prophet is the one who brings the teachings of Jesus, the presence of Yahweh, up close and personal. Mm. It's, it guards against nominal Christianity. Mm. So the problem with having a theocracy is that most of the people don't tend to want to follow God, mm. regardless of what the political sy- system is. And you know this, even if you live in an uh, Islamic theocracy, is that most people just get on with their lives, nine to five work. Uh, and so Discipleship actually guards against nominalism within Mm. the nation. Uh, And why we make disciples is to make sure that it's not just the nation saying, we're a Christian nation, but it's actually individuals. And how you teach in the ancient world is through two means, through your words and through your deeds. And Mm. the two have to match. The Pharisees are, are criticized in Matthew 23 because their words are good, but their deeds don't match. Mm. And so uh, this is where we have to get the two to align. You know, if the prophet is sort of a a slightly distant presence and more hostile, uh, you mentioned earlier in our interview, how do we avoid going around with a placard in the middle of town? Uh, Well, that's more the prophet. If you feel uncomfortable with that, and there is a role for that. But not a self-appointed role, right? Well, somebody's got to do it. Yeah? <laughs> but there, also, there is also the educator mm. who works close and personal and with a sense of ge- gentleness, mm. knowing where the person is mm. and saying, look, you need to, you need to, um, uh, become, uh, to, to learn the ways of the Lord. And the way you do it is by watching me. Mm. You want to know what a Christian is? Follow me mm. and imitate me as I imitate the Lord. That's, that was Paul's model. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Mm. And so we have to, what I've found when I've shared that with people is that many Christians say, oh, uh, how can I say to others, imitate me? Yeah, I know what I'm like. Uh, well, <laughs> Matthew would turn around and say, well, get your life sorted quickly, mate. Um, mm. Because uh, either this thing has power or it doesn't. Mm. Yeah, uh, And get your life sorted. And if you can't do it and you claim to be a Christian, well, why are you bothering to ask uh, others to do it? Mm. So he's saying, you know, the brutal reality is, is you've got to shape up and um, uh, you've got to have the confidence of saying, 
there's enough in my life which is based on the words and deeds of Jesus that I can say to someone else, if you want to be a Christian, do what I do. Mm. Okay. Now, uh, our, our, uh, our economy is ramped up. Uh, what I know we have uh, at the moment is very little leisure time mm. and very little time outside of work. You know, we, we work long hours and we don't have time to devote to simply spending time with others. Mm. That's, that's the crisis I see with this element of discipleship mm. is that, you know, if people come to church Sabbath morning, wonderful. But, you know, for the rest of the week, many of them are just maxed out. Why? Just to stay in their job and to pay their mortgage. Mm. You know, where's that little bit of room extra to, to devote to investing in other people's lives? And so what we end up with is a privatized Christianity where it's mm. me and church rather than me discipling those in, in, in our, our, our cities and nations. The next role is the wise man. Mm. Uh, and the wise man, uh, <clears throat> this, is, this is almost uh, overtly political. So in the Old Testament, the classic old men, oh, old men, wise men, <laughs> <laughs> they tend to be old men as well. Um, classic wise men are people like Joseph. Mm. He was chosen by Pharaoh to be the equivalent of a prime minister of Egypt. Why? Because he recognized his wisdom. Mm. Uh, the other one we've got is Daniel, mm. who was leading, uh, effectively he was leading the Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persian Empire. Mm. He was, he's known as a wise man. Mm. Uh, and then you've got Solomon, who's a wise man. And these wise men, they, they, um, they are maybe less experts in the text, uh, less scholars, uh, and, and rather they are open to a broad range of um, divine revelation. So it's dreams. Uh, you read Solomon, it's nature. He, he learns a huge amount from nature, mm. from observing culture around. Mm. Uh, wise men are open to the idea that God is already working in your city. Mm. And they're learning from that. Mm. Uh, the, the, the wisdom that God has put within the fabric of society that's already there is, is that there is a presence already there. Uh, and when you get to the time of Jesus, the rabbis were described as wise men, and they, were, they would lead riots against the Romans. They were mm. political. Mm. So when Jesus says, I will send you wise men, let's assume that they come from Jesus. Now, whether they're Christian wise men or not Christian wise men is partly incidental. Mm. What we know is, is that he's using people like this. And the amount of wisdom motifs in the gospel is really saying you can't neglect this side. Um, wise men are given dreams about the future. Mm. Uh, Jesus reveals uh, seven parables in chapter 13, which tell us what will happen in the future. Those are, are, are really wisdom revelations. Right. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 13, he talks about them. These tensions about how to be a Christian in a very politicized world where we're not also being oppressive at the same time, um, but we're able to hold the tensions of justice and mercy. I think these are very, very important um, aspects of the Christian walk to learn how to live by. So I appreciate you sharing your, your wisdom into Matthew and, and uh, helping us to make a little bit of a modern application. And so is there anything, any last word that you'd like to say? Well, the, the final role we didn't quite get onto was lawyers, scribes. Mm. 
Uh, and this is, uh, as we mentioned, what we don't get in the gospel is Jesus saying, these are the laws every nation has to run by. He allows for local devolved laws. Mm. But he, he says that you've got lots of stories in the gospel which are based on mercy or judgment or faith. Blind Bartimaeus, you don't think of him a lawyer, mm. but he is in a sense because he cries for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he's healed because of his faith. Mm. And so you've got this you've got non-scribely trained people who actually understand the principles of the law, mm. justice, mercy, and faith. And they're to go out. It's an underground movement which swells up within the nations. Mm. And it has to go to the sheep and to the shepherds. Mm. Otherwise, they can't be held accountable on Judgment Day. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, a final thought is, is that uh, we need to take our discipleship activities not just to the home, but also to the Sanhedrin. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's very, very enlightening. Um, it's one of those areas of life I'm still trying to uh, find out all the delineations, but you did a really good job. I like the, like, still against the prophet with the sign, <laughs> but but I, I like the different uh, demarcations of roles and like you said, the educator is somebody who's somebody who's very up close um, and understands how to work with his pupil. Um, but then I do understand the, the necessity of... Um, the hard uh, edge. The hard edge, yeah. Yeah, it's like when you go to a doctor, you don't just want sympathy. Right. You want, you want, you want to know what's wrong with you. Right. That's true. <laughs> no, you don't like, I'm to. so sorry. Well, yeah, I'm here to listen. <laughs> yeah, now... I. And when I think about religion, too, I think a lot about um, some religions are very narrow in its scope. You know, like, what do we do with criminals? Or what do we do with, I mean, we, do, we don't take into account, I think when God was, you know, building his theocracy or, or building even uh, the new kingdom, like, there, he's dealing with a very broad range of social issues. Um, and sometimes in our in our own perception of what the gospel would be, it doesn't take into account these very fringe elements of society that do happen, that do have to be accounted for, and that we somehow have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yes, it allows multiple ways of being a Christian. Yes. See, and I'd always thought, well, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, there's just one way of doing it. Mm. It's like he's got his own version of Paul's doctrine of different spiritual gifts. Right. Yeah, but he gives this these different roles. Mm. And you don't just, you know, it's not like you're the prophet and you can't be a righteous person. We're meant to model all of them, mm. but you will naturally find you'll be drawn more to one of them as against one of the, the others. Yeah. And at different points in the nation's life cycle, you need more of one than the other. That's a good point, the different life cycles of a nation. So that's our show, folks. We realize that discovering the world through the lens of Matthew only gives us a piece of how we as individuals can navigate our interactions in the world, not only as citizens, but as friends, sisters, and brothers, fellow human beings on this journey to discover our ultimate purpose in life. In future episodes, we hope to continue to explore this question with other experts in law, policy, and sociology so that we can gain a dynamic worldview that will equip us to be considerate, compassionate, and effective leaders reaching hearts and minds with the love of God. So thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. What parts inspired you and what topics and questions do you want to hear us tackle on future episodes? 